Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 41. This is not a particularly positive passage. And I didn't just say that because all three words began with P. Uh, though that would be a good preacher trick. It's just not. It, it's, it is showing difficulties. As a matter of fact, this week's sermon, excuse me while I adjust the cord back here. This week's sermon, next week's uh, message as well, are, are showing some, some flaws in Paul's character. Uh, he recovers, and he, he, he always does as we work through Scripture, almost always does. But we're going to see some issues that begin to rise up, and, and, and issues with Paul that we, we knew about him. We, we saw his, uh, his, some of his characteristics when he was still Saul persecuting the church. Um, if, if he took the, uh, the, the personality test that we talked about in our e-group last week, I'm pretty sure Paul would be choleric. Um, he is a, or if you remember the animals, if you've done that, he would be a lion. Um, he is an aggressive guy, and he is, he is uh, just incredibly committed to the call, but sometimes Paul gets off track. He, he knows what the call is, he knows what the vision is, but sometimes he tends to take it into his own hands. Uh, I don't know if you've kept up with the, the news, the, the reports from the Houston Chronicle uh, a few weeks ago. But uh, the Houston Chronicle released a, a disturbing three-part report on Southern Baptists, Southern Baptist churches. Uh, it, it was about sexual abuse. Uh, there were some 700 victims of 380 abusers. About 210, 220 of those, I think, were convicted, and uh, another 160 were, were credi- <coughs> excuse me, credibly accused. That is a, a bad enough story in, in and of itself, and uh, I wrote about it for the uh, vision, the March vision, my newsletter. Uh, I talked about it a little bit and, and, and talked about what we're doing as a church to do all we can to make sure uh, that our children, our, our vulnerable folks are protected. But what we saw in that article that I, I hate to say is more disturbing than the actual abuse, but I think it might be, was numerous instances of cover-up, um, even by some of our national leaders and our entities as Southern Baptists. Now, I will say that much of that has been rectified over the years, but it, it, it shouldn't have happened the way it did, and we've got to own up to that as, as Southern Baptists. But, but beyond that, uh, as bad as that is, and, and, and it is, and, and I do not want to downplay that at all, um, statistically, we need to understand that one in three women and one in six men have experienced some sort of sexual violence, which means that anywhere from 40 to 50 people here this morning, statistically, have experienced that. Now, those numbers both nationally in our convention and just the idea that that could have taken place here has spurred a very necessary national, state, associational, and even 
local conversation and action. We're uh, looking at, as a church, making sure our policies are as up-to-date as, as possible. We're doing everything we can to live by those policies in order to protect uh, people. And then if something, heaven forbid, literally happens, we, we handle that correctly. Now, I wanted to just step aside from the message here for just a second and say if, if you have experienced this, we as a church want to be a place, we are a place of healing and acceptance. And we want to work with you and do everything correctly to help you with that situation. Now, I bring up what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention because this is a black eye for the convention right now. It's something we're having to deal with. It will be a major topic of the annual meeting in Birmingham this summer. I guarantee you that. It was actually a topic last summer when we were in Dallas. Uh, so it's, it's something we as a convention have to deal with. And people watch the news. They, it, it, was on, it was in the paper. It was, on, it was reported on Fox News, I think. Um, I'm sure other outlets picked it up, but I just saw that one was shared. So it's something we have to deal with when people see Southern Baptist on our sign or in our, uh, uh, on our website or our, our connections there. If they watch the news, they're going to, oh, well, I wonder what, you know, what they're doing, how they're handling that situation, etc. And it puts us, regardless of our innocence in the situation, and I don't think we're entirely innocent because we are, our, we are a Southern Baptist church. We are the messengers to the convention. We are why the convention exists. So we have power. We have uh, decision-making authority. And uh, so it falls on us as church members to, to address this. You know, God was not surprised by this. God wasn't surprised by the revelations. He knew it had gone on. He didn't suddenly get the Houston Chronicle delivered to the front gate of heaven and go, well, I didn't know that was happening. He knew, and he wasn't thwarted by that either. As a matter of fact, our, our theme for the passage to this, this message this morning is God is neither surprised nor thwarted by our defiance, our deviance, or our sin. God is bigger than all of that. God is, as we sang, the, the author of creation, the one who controls it all. He will reign forever, and he is in charge of when Jesus comes back. Let me say at the outset, and I'll say it again a number of times throughout the message, and I'll say it at the end again as well. God's power, despite our sin, our de defiance, our deviance, does not excuse our defiance or our deviance or our sin. We can't sin freely, walk through life doing whatever we want. Well, God's bigger than that. He'll take care of it. That's not at all what Scripture teaches. And we'll see that a little bit. We'll begin to see that this morning as we look through this passage because this passage, as I said earlier, begins a, a, uh, a pattern of obstinacy by Paul. Paul has the, the vision. He has... Uh, the calling. He knows what he is supposed to be doing, but it appears in this passage he begins to get out ahead of God, and he begins to make plans that are outside of God's uh, uh, 
direction, God's calling. And he makes these decisions, it appears, based on Luke's uh, recording of the events, all on his own. And it creates some major, major issues. Now, I am not, lest somebody accuse me, I'm not equating sexual abuse with what Paul's doing. Not in a one-to-one equation. What I am saying, though, is that when we make the wrong decision, whether it's the sin of some action or the sin of ignoring God, which you could make the case that's the same thing, uh, we are still doing things that, from our view, are going to mess up what God's doing. And God says, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to have your issues, you're going to suffer those consequences, but I'm going to come back around and I'm going to continue to use you because his, these things don't surprise or thwart God. They just don't. So we see in this passage, we're in verse, uh, verses 36 through 41, the last part of chapter 15 of Acts, and we see what's going on with Paul at this time. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You just read it the way it's written, and and Luke, it, it it almost comes off as and aside. And this happened, so let's get us to the, the rest of the story. But it, it's, it's not. And, and Luke's lack of detail here is one of the clues that lets us know he is making a statement by not saying much. Now, you're always in troubled waters. You're in on thin ice. That's the f- cliche I'm looking for. Uh, you're on thin ice if you begin to preach what Scripture doesn't say. Well, I'm not going to preach what Scripture doesn't say this morning, but I am going to point out what Luke does not say, because there are times when he does say it, and he means something by it. So the lack of saying it, and we'll, you'll see what we're talking, I'm talking about when we get to it. The fact that he left some incredible, and you might be even be, be able to look at it, and say, wait a minute, there's something missing here. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. You'll see. All right. So Paul's obstinacy begins here in verse 36. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And that's not a bad idea, is it? That, that sounds great. Oh, let's go check on all the folks that we witnessed to, all the folks that, uh, we, all these places we started churches, these, these groups that came to the Lord while we were there, let's go back and check on them. Just on the surface, that sounds wonderful. But do you notice who is missing from that verse? I'll take a yes or a no. But if you say yes, I'm going to ask you who. Who's missing? Holy Spirit. Notice that he doesn't say anything about, and the Holy Spirit told us. The Holy Spirit led us. It's not spirit-led, nor is it church-commissioned. 
there's something going on here that doesn't go on, uh, that, that hasn't gone on in the past, or maybe there's not something going on here that has gone on in the past. If we look back, we don't even have to look far. We just look back to net last week's message when we talked about the letter. The letter that they wrote to send out to all the churches after the uh, council that we talked about in verse, um, let me find it. Verse 28 of chapter 15. So you don't have to go back far. You might not even have to turn a page. It says, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours. It was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours. Luke is always, throughout Acts, going to make a clear statement of Holy Spirit leading if it's at all questionable that the Holy Spirit might not have been involved. There are times when, it, it, for, for, uh, for Luke, it's clear. It, it, was, it was clear when the fire fell on them at Pentecost. He didn't have to say, he, he probably did, and he didn't have to say, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Just the description of what was going on there let them know. He didn't have to say that when Cornelius and his family responded to the gospel and showed some outward signs of the Holy Spirit's filling. He didn't have to say that that was the Holy Spirit. He probably did, but he didn't have to. But there are times when decisions are made in the book of Acts where Luke has to say, I want you to understand here that you might be able to read this and walk away thinking, well, a group of people got together, as in the Jerusalem Council. A group of people got together, made a decision, and that was what, uh, and that became law based on this group. No, 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 no. He's saying here in verse 28 of chapter 15, we want you to understand it wasn't just us, it was the Holy Spirit that led us. Luke is very, very careful. Luke is not a, a haphazard author. Not a haphazard documentarian. He is going to specifically and clearly record what happened. And he is going to make a point. He, there's something going on with the text. There's a reason he's writing what he writes. And here, there is a reason he doesn't write something. And he does not tell us that the Holy Spirit led them or that the church commissioned them. Because if you go back to the first uh, missionary journey, when they first left, in chapter uh, 13, they send them out, the church comes together, and they uh, commission them, they prepare them, very beginning of chapter 13, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. That's a big deal. And then we get to the end of chapter 15, and it says, after some time passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's do this. Well, something else you'll notice about this uh, decision, that what they were doing, is this is not a continued spread of the gospel. This is not them saying, how can we, can we reach more people with the gospel? Paul had a very specific call on his life. 
His call was to reach Gentiles with the gospel. Now, it is important that we disciple believers, and Paul spent a good bit of time in all the places they didn't try to kill him, uh, discipling the new believers and setting up uh, uh, churches. And when he passed back on the way, uh, passed through on the way back home, he continued to disciple them. He, he, he uh, appointed elders, pastors in the church, and he was setting up the churches in the town. But it was not his calling in life to go back to the churches repeatedly to minister to them. That is why God placed pastors and elders and leaders in the churches. That wasn't Paul's calling. And yet he says, let's go back. Let's do this, Barnabas. So his obstinacy to what the Holy Spirit has already called him to, to, to do begins there. And in verses 37 and 38, we see his obstinacy grow. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Remember John Mark? John Mark is talked about in, verses, in chapter 13, verse 13, uh, they, were, they got to Cyprus, the very beginning of their missionary journey. Uh, things looked like they went pretty well in Cyprus, and for whatever reason, John Mark turned around and went home. He said, this, I've had enough. That we're not given any clues to why he made that decision, but he left them, and he went back home. Uh, we also know that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. So there's a family relationship here that, that is in play. And this is the same John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we're not talking about a lightweight spiritually or theologically here. And yet, at this point, Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Because of one decision he made quite some time prior to this discussion right here. And Paul says, forget it, nope, we're not taking him. Now, what does Barnabas' name mean? Son of encouragement. Barnabas is an encourager. As a matter of fact, he's more than just an encourager. He is a reconciler. Uh, back in chapter 9, verse 27, Saul uh, or, or Barnabas reconciles Saul to the apostles. Wait a minute, this is the guy who's been trying to kill us. And Barnabas says, no, no, I, I know what he was, but he's not that anymore. And then a little further on in chapter 11, verse 26, Saul, uh, Barnabas reconciles Saul to the church in Antioch. Uh, folk, you got, why are we going to let him come preach here? He's Saul the persecutor. And, and Barnabas says, no, 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 no. I know that's what he was, but that's not who he is now. He is somebody different now. And he reconciles Saul first to the apostles, then to the church in Antioch. And he actually goes and gets Paul, Saul at the time, from Tarsus, where Saul's been kind of holed up for a while, and brings him back to Antioch and says, we need this guy. He will be a great asset to our mission endeavor. And he goes to, to Paul and says, John Mark needs to come with us. And Paul says, nope. Barnabas couldn't reconcile this. He couldn't reconcile the relationship between Paul and John Mark. And Luke here is very vague 
uh, to the point of non-existence, actually, in telling us who is right. He doesn't say, and Paul was right to exclude John Mark, or, and Barnabas was right to, to ask for John Mark to come on the missionary journey. He doesn't tell us anything like that, but the feeling, the tenor of this passage is reconciliation should have taken place. That John Mark should have gone with them. This obstinacy grows. I will not be reconciled to John Mark. I will go where I want to go. I will go do this and not what God's called me. I will not take John Mark with me. And then verse 39, we see that Paul's obstinacy destroys. Verse 39 is the church split. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. This uh, phrase, sharp disagreement, it doesn't carry the weight in English that it would in Greek. The word is paroxysm. It's a medical term for uh, having shudders and, 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 and a violent reaction to something. Paul, somebody, was shuddering with anger over this situation. You get the feeling that they almost came to blows. This was not a minor disagreement. This wasn't two friends saying, ah, I think Whataburger's better. No, I think In-N-Out's better. You know, it, it's not Chick-fil-A's better. Uh, not, you know, we all know Cane's is better than Zaxby's, so that's not even a discussion to have. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not trivial. They are furious. Somebody doesn't say who exactly, but there is such a sharp disagreement. There is paroxysm, a shuddering anger. Of the two, who would we expect to have that sort of response? Barnabas the encourager? Or are we seeing glimpses of Saul's past? Saul's past, Paul's, Saul coming out. Almost, not quite a Jekyll and Hyde thing, but read Paul's letters. Chief of sinners. What I don't want to do, I do, and what I do want to do, I don't do. Listen to his own struggle. We, we gloss over some of what he says in those letters and say, well, he's just being nice so he can relate to us. No, no, uh, I think... I agree with some other folks here. Paul fought his old self every day. And some days, like right here, the old self won. Maybe, maybe, there's a, there's a hangover here, not literally, a hangover here from some concerns that show up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13. Some Judaizers came to Antioch. While uh, Peter had been in Antioch, he uh, visiting, he ate with everybody. Just ate with Gentiles, no big deal. But some, some folks from Jerusalem showed up, some bigwigs in the church showed up, and Peter suddenly stops eating with Gentiles. Now, this kind of makes sense if we go back to the letter 
uh, a little, makes a little sense. Go back to the letter that they wrote saying don't eat meat strangled and sacrificed to idols. But it doesn't say they were doing any of that. It just says he was eating with them. But in order to please these folks from Jerusalem, Paul suddenly decides, oh, I can't eat with y'all anymore. And he moves over here. And, and Paul calls him out on it. And Paul also says he even convinced the son of encouragement, the reconciler. He even convinced Barnabas to do it. Is, is Paul holding a grudge here? Well, we know he is against John Mark. Maybe there's something going on here with Barnabas. Paul cannot let this go. And he allows this obstinacy to destroy this relationship. So Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus, it says. Something interesting about Cyprus and this is the beauty of Luke's writing. This is the, ability, the, the, the beauty of, of preaching through a book. We get to go back and pull out what we've already talked about. Remember, on the return from the first missionary journey, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, they started, they went across the Mediterranean to Cyprus. They, then they went up into uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, and visited all those places. And then when they kind of got to the end, they could have just gone on home. They weren't that far, but they didn't. They went back through all those places that they had visited and skipped Cyprus. And we don't know why they skipped Cyprus, but they didn't go back to Cyprus. Barnabas and Mark, it appears, are going back to complete this unfinished work. They didn't set up elders. They didn't strengthen the church. And Barnabas, being from Cyprus, there's a lot of tension here. Did, you think that didn't offend Barnabas? Hey, why didn't we go to my house? Why didn't we go to my home and set up churches? We went to all these other places. Paul, why didn't we go here? Well, Paul, I'm going to go there and finish what we should have finished on the first trip. It's a mess, y'all. This is not a healthy relationship. This is not putting the fun in dysfunctional. This is putting the yuck in it. This is an example of how churches split. It's a wonder and the Antioch church didn't split at this point and have a group that followed Paul and a group that followed Barnabas. We don't have any indication of that, but at this point things are at an extreme low. So what's going to happen now? Well, God's not surprised. God didn't wake up that morning, sleep a little late. There's a morning conversation that Paul and Barnabas had. The, some angels said, God, wake up. Paul and Barnabas are fighting. It's not how it worked. He knew this was going to happen. And in verse 40 and 41, already God begins to heal this. Not necessarily the relationship, not yet. That's coming. The relationship between Paul and Barnabas will eventually be healed. The relationship between Paul and John Mark will eventually be healed. But what God is beginning to do is to move people into place so that when the time comes, God is able to say to Paul, Excuse me, sir, do I have your attention now? We're going to talk about that next week. But God is beginning to get him ready now. Verses 40 and 41, but Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
Silas is going to prove one day to be a great co-missionary, a great uh, companion to Paul. Uh, we're going to have some great stories and acts about their mission work that is only going to occur after they begin to listen to the Holy Spirit again. And we will see response to the Holy Spirit on the part of Paul. So he begins to do that here. He gives uh, Paul this companion in Silas. Now, Paul, given the way it's worded, Paul probably thought, I made a good choice here. And God's going, yeah, yeah, you made a good choice, right? I had nothing to do with it, putting Silas right there for you to take. A guy from Jerusalem, a guy who was going to have all the credentials necessary to go into the synagogues when they visited towns, but also the heart of a missionary to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Yeah, Paul, complete accident. accident. Boy, aren't you smart. Well, in the next passage, in the beginning of chapter 16, we're going to see that Timothy shows up on the scene, and Timothy will become a replacement for Mark. So we're going to still have this uh, trio missionary team. What used to be Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark will now be Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And that's going to be God making this new team now with two missionary groups, not just one, going in two different directions. Still probably not what, well, still not what, uh, what God told them to do. And then we see that the church there in Antioch commends them. Now, it might sound like it's not that big a difference between commends and commissioned, but it's a huge difference. Commissioned is a service where they pray for them and lay hands on them and probably have a fellowship meal if they're good Baptists. Um, that's a commission. A commendation is... God go with you as they walk out the door. Again, Luke is very specific about the language he's using. So the church even doesn't know what to do here, what to think. Now, Luke, Paul is the hero of the story in Acts. He is the one he is following, but Acts is a story of the Holy Spirit, of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, and for a few minutes, at least in our reading, but for a few months in the actual action, the Holy Spirit is not existent. It is non-existent. Paul makes the decision. Paul chooses Silas. Paul causes a fight. The church does not commission them, lay hands on them, pray the Spirit over them, but instead says, good luck. Commended them to God. God have, be merciful. God be gracious. But that's it. Now we continue to look though the very last phrase. It's important in verse 41. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Strength, that's good. That is great. That is not Paul's job. That is not what he was called to do. And then we're going to see next week, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. But at this point in time, Paul is about a thousand miles from obedience. I encourage you to go ahead and read ahead. I, I, it, it's fine. I'm, I'm, you're not going to make a, a worse grade because you cheat a little bit and read ahead on, on this passage. Read 16, 1 through 10 later on this week. 
and see what God had to do to finally get Paul's attention. We're not at the end of Paul's obstinacy and disobedience. There's more coming, but there are other things that are coming too. Unbelievers will be converted. But Michael, isn't he messed up? Isn't he, hasn't he, you know, ruined the batch a little bit here? Hadn't he done, is it, is it, is it over for Paul? And No, no. Unbelievers are going to be converted. Churches are going to be planted. The sick are going to be, be healed. How? Why? Because God is not surprised or thwarted. So this message this morning, because we've had to focus on Paul and what he didn't do so much, you might, be, uh, you might think, and you'd be forgiven for thinking this, that this message is all about how Paul was obstinate. No, this message is all about how God was still in control despite Paul's obstinacy, despite the fact that Paul did not listen to the Spirit and uh, Paul did not do what he was supposed to, because God can use even the broken, difficult, and obstinate to accomplish his will. He can use any of us. If you are broken, difficult, or obstinate, please raise your hand. That means he can use all of you that told the truth and he can even use all of you that lied. He can. He can use us. He can use individuals who are broken, difficult, and obstinate. He can use organizations that are broken, difficult, and obstinate. He can use churches that are broken, difficult, and obstinate. Now, there will come a time, a a day of reckoning, where Paul is going to have to admit, we don't have the record of him saying, boy, I sure was wrong about all that. But God gets his attention, and he gets him back on the path that he wants him on. And we will have to do that as well as broken, difficult, and obstinate individuals, organizations, or churches. We've got to get back on track with God. But God is not surprised by any of that. God's will is not thwarted uh, by any of that. And God can still use us if we repent. And God's power, God's lack of surprise, God's ability to overcome our stupidity is not an excuse to be willfully broken, difficult, or obstinate. What did I preach on last week? Grace alone. I know you're going to remember. That's why I gave the answer. Grace alone. It is God's grace that says even though you are broken, difficult, and obstinate, And often willfully so, you are forgiven and you are still useful to my kingdom. That's the God we serve. And if you don't believe that, and and, and, and y'all, let's let's, let's back up for just one second here. Numerous examples in the Old Testament of God using the godless to accomplish his will. So just because... You are used by God for something doesn't mean that you are godly. He uses people who aren't godly to accomplish his will as well. 
as believers, you should be striving for godliness. Let me say that one more time. But God can still use you, and he will. Uh, God used, later on, Paul's going to talk about a thorn in his flesh. And God used that thorn in Paul's flesh in order to show him that his grace, grace alone, was sufficient for him. Maybe, just maybe, the thorn in his flesh was not a physical ailment, a limp, a blindness, or something like that. Maybe the thorn in Paul's flesh was Saul. It might have been external. But regardless, what what does Paul say about that thorn in his flesh? It was a messenger of, not God, Satan. God used a messenger of Satan to grow Paul. And Paul, kind of the greatest missionary ever, does that. He heals from it. He's used by God anyway. God's not surprised by your obstinacy. God's not surprised by your disobedience and your sin. But God wants to use you anyway. As, an, as a believer, maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you, maybe you have been difficult or obstinate when it comes to salvation. I don't need Jesus. I'm good. I don't need forgiveness of my sins. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm at least better than most of those people in the church. You're probably right. But without Jesus, you're still going to hell. It doesn't matter how good you are because you can't be good enough. It doesn't matter how well you do things because you can't do them well enough. I could practice basketball for a long time, but I'm not going to be as good as LeBron James. He's not my favorite basketball player, but, man, he can play. I'm never going to be as good as him. And if the standard is to be as good as LeBron, I'm going to fail, and I could work at it for the rest of my life. But I'm not going to succeed. You, as someone who's never trusted Christ, who is counting on, or are counting on your goodness to get you into heaven, you will never, ever be good enough. And so, your only answer is Jesus. God saves the obstinate through his son. Admit that you're a sinner and repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you. I am a sinner and I can do do nothing about it. I can't make up for it and I can't fix it. Saul, Paul, the chief missionary, says he's the chief of sinners. Yeah, he can save you. He will forgive you. But you have to accept that forgiveness. Believe that Jesus is the perfect son of God who died for your sins. Because you're you're not putting your faith in yourself. You're not putting your faith in something you can't see. Putting your faith in, well, it might be something you can't see. Putting your faith in something that isn't there. Putting your faith in um, an idea or words on a page. But you are putting your faith in a person who lived a sinless life who died, who was flesh and blood, who who hurt and cried and laughed and ate and was killed and was punished for you. God said, no longer will I punish the people. All of their sin and all of their punishment is now on you, my only son. Believe in that Jesus and then choose to follow him 
by giving your life to him. Turn to him. Follow him. Stop your obstinate ways. Your obstinate rejection of salvation. And God will save you. It's that easy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even in our obstinacy, you continue to pursue us, whether it is someone that just doesn't think they need Jesus. They're fine. Lord, you continue to pursue them. You continue to, to draw them to you. Lord, I pray that they would respond in faith. But Lord, you don't let your believers go either. When we are obstinate and determined to go our own way, to do our own thing, to ignore your clear call, to divide, to deviate, to sin, Lord, you still draw. You still go after us. And Lord, you still move in our hearts. God, I pray that you would continue to chase us down, continue to draw us, convict us of our sin, correct us. Lord, whether that's a, a national convention that in too many places allowed things to go on that should not have gone on, all the way down through the state and the association, right down to our church right here, and to individual hearts where we as believers allow things to go on that in our hearts and in our lives that should not. Places where we deviate, are deviant, and are obstinate. God, correct, lead. God, we pray that you would continue to draw us. And God, that you would use us in a mighty way for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God still wants to use the obstinate. He wants to use you. Unbeliever, quit running from him. Trust him for your salvation this morning. Come, talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Talk to Jordan. He'll be over here on my right. I'll be over here on the left. Maybe, believer, you would like us to pray with you. Maybe you need to come to these rails, make this stage an altar where you give God your life your, your obstinacy and say, Lord, I don't want to run. I don't want to mess things up anymore. I want to follow you and truly trust you and be used by you. Whatever your decision is, is this morning, no matter how obstinate you have been, God can still use you and do great things through you in sulfur and in the world. So let's stand and let's sing and let's do business with God this morning.